Hello and welcome to Georgie Stripping the Dipping with your boy AMG Dense. And I can't lie, I feel nice like curry goat and mutton. And I'm so smooth, they call me the North London Jensen Button. And listen, you know, it's not every day you get to bring a two-time Nurburgring endurance champion or a 24-hour Silverstone winner or even a race of champion skills winner too to the pod. So it's an absolutely delectable delight to have professional racing driver and performance coach Bradley Philpott on with the podcast today. So Brad, how are you feeling today and what have you been up to during the Easter break? Hey team. Um, yeah, uh, today I've been having a reasonably chilled day. Um, we had some family over and had a, had a nice lunch. And over the Easter break, um, I've mainly been kind of relaxing and kind of carting. So I had a nice a nice big um, day out carting yesterday at Wilton Mill. Got quite battered and bruised. And, uh, uh, we saw that. <laughs> yeah, you've seen the videos. Um, reasonably controversial, but it's, it's what these charity events always tend to descend into. Um, Whenever there's a whenever whenever there's a charity event, this one was in aid of cancer research. The rules tend to go out of the window a bit, and I think race control left at about four p.m. and the racing went on till about eight p.m. So right. there was um, a lot of crazy stuff happening. But yeah, I just about survived with with my body intact. Oh well, listen, that safety is a number one priority, and we're glad that you got out of there, like you know, majorly like unscathed. But I think you might probably have a sore neck for a couple of days looking at the velocity of one or two of those uh, incidents, Brad. But nonetheless, um, let's just start with a common question. I'm sure you get all the time. Um, how did your journey into competitive motor racing begin, Brad? And you know, what were some of the trickier challenges or obstacles you faced when you first started out? So uh, my journey began because um, when I was a kid, I watched Formula One. Um, so we're talking kind of Damon Hill versus Michael Schumacher era, 95, 96. Um, and my my family had kind of a motor racing interest in their backgrounds. My my granddad used to have a very um, a very big company building coaches, like buses. Um, he it all went it kind of all went down the toilet before I was born. So he wasn't wealthy or anything when I was when I was around, but he had had a, a Formula Ford race team um, in the 70s and he'd become world offshore powerboat champion. So my family kind of had a bit of, they were interested in motorsport a bit, um, but there was no funding or anything around for when I then became interested in it. Um, and we just started off kind of indoor karting, doing a few indoor kart races when I was about nine or 10 years old at a local track. And I was very fortunate that my my stepdad at the time bought me and my little brother a, a cadet go-kart and we did some club racing in it. Nothing, we never did British championships. We never did any of the the big series, um, but we definitely did a couple of a couple of local championships. And it, this is roughly exactly the same time as Hamilton was doing the same thing. Just he was doing it at kind of world level and, and me and my little brother were doing it on a local level because we're, we're roughly the same age as Lewis. Lewis is about six months older than me. Um, and so I was used to, I, I actually remember even now looking at the results in the karting magazine and seeing this Lewis Hamilton winning loads of stuff. And, um, he was like the guy to, to look up to. Um, and, and it kind of just went from there. I went to, you know, went up through school, college, didn't really carry on with any of the karting because it was very expensive. I got to about 12 and that was when the money ran out. Um, and then when I turned 18, I just got a, a credit card and a loan, um, because they, back then it was really easy to come by. They were just giving out credit to, to anyone. And even though I didn't have a job, I think I probably just told a bit of a white lie on the form, said, yeah, I've got a full-time job, got myself a loan, bought a ropey old go-kart and just stuck it on the back of a wooden trailer and went to some local tracks and 
tried to do some karting running the cart myself it was actually me and a friend and we didn't have any idea what we were doing the carts weren't even legal like we had to cut bits off and weld new bits on just to be allowed into the races because they were so out of date but that's kind of how i then carried on my on on my journey and and, you know when you're when you're in something that's a bit of a shed uh, to drive it definitely helps you you have to get the most out of it if you don't want to come last so it's quite a good lesson um and and from that point onwards that was kind of it that that was my that was where it was going to end but I applied for a job to become a race instructor at um, Palmer Sport, which is uh, run by Motorsport Vision, who own bo- basically most of the UK's racetracks. Okay. And I somehow got this job. We had like an assessment, it was like a three-day assessment where you had to you had to drive, you had to instruct, you had to um, you had to basically do like a presentation in front of a room full of people, so you could show that you were all right at public speaking and that kind of thing. And, and anyway, it ended up that I got this job and I ended up working there for twelve years. And that's that's really where I got my proper start in motorsport because I was then in a race car every day, or every working day for over a decade, and you can't help but absorb some of the some of how to drive if you're paying attention and you know if you care. And I was quite young, and I, I really was happy and very grateful to be in a motorsport role. And I was suddenly amongst loads of other people. Most of the other instructors were top level carters or young single-seater drivers kind of just earning some money to like pocket money whereas I was there as a job you know that was I wasn't doing any other racing I was just there to instruct and that became my full-time job and so I really wanted to do it well um and so so that's kind of I could go and I could talk to talk to you about that for hours but that's where it kind of started um it was karting into race instructing and then sitting in really fast race cars every day trying to teach people how to drive them Awesome. You know, and it, it goes to show, you know, how, like, I guess, versatile that kind of career is and obviously different roles you could play as well, even going beyond karting. But just touching back on your early karting career as well there, Brad, um, a moment ago, like, uh, we were talking about, well, off air, me and Georgina were talking about, like, the British Rental Karting Championship, you know, and it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest national and most prestigious event for karting in the UK. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Brad, just to kind of, like, give us a, a synopsis into the event, as you're one of the co-organizers of that, and also just, um, you know, the perks of the event, the caliber of the talent that we saw there over a fortnight ago and um what makes the competition so special yeah so so the brkc the british rental car championship that you attended last weekend and so did i um that's something that i started in 2011 as a way of giving people something that was a national karting series but they didn't need a load of money to do so they didn't need to own a cart you know buy all the equipment that goes with that and run a cart they could win a british championship and win a cash prize and go to the world championship for free by racing a cart which they didn't own and and so this event that we did last weekend the the cost of the entry is 190 pounds and and that's it if you want to do more practice you can pay for extra practice but really to actually enter is 190 pounds and that's basically more more or less what you pay for a set of tires for one practice session if you own your own cart so gives you a bit of an idea of the scale difference and and that championship brkc basically blossomed from something pretty small in 2011 to something pretty big now that's recognized as a as a qualifying series for the cart world championship um in in 2022 and we have we've been recognized as that for a few years now and as you saw for yourself 
it's really hard. It's basically a hundred of the best drivers from around the world. We have people from North Carolina. We had um, the Hungarian national champion. We had multiple world champions all racing there. And and yeah, it's basically designed as an affordable way to win a British championship and get yourself onto the world stage. And, and the caliber of the drivers there, we've had people who have been pretty high level in car racing. I mean, in fact, you probably even raced against one driver who was there at the weekend who has won Formula Two races, and they still come back because they love the challenge. The guy, exactly. It's Ramon Pinero Ramon, as well. Exactly. Yeah, Ramon Pinero. He's one of my friends, actually. And he, he was waxing lyrical to me in the car on the way back from the first day of competition about, yes, it's not the fastest motorsport he's raced in you know he's raced very high powered single seaters and, and gone quite far but it's so difficult to beat people because the equipment's the same for everyone and everyone there is so good so i, I hope you enjoyed it it was a, a bit of a baptism of fire for you because you definitely didn't get very much practice you were in at the deep end straight away straight away i tried to give you some pointers but there's just not enough time unless you're doing a bit more practice than you got to do well, exactly that, Brad. But honestly, I was actually speaking about this uh, off-air to Georgina as well. It was such a delightful and insightful experience for me too, because, you know, I'll, I'll give the story to the, view, the the listeners at home. Like, Brad had texted me like five days before the event. And uh, he was like, you know, do you like go-karting? Are you free next Saturday? And I was like, of course. You know, what sort of question is that, man? And he was like, well, listen, you know, there's a space open. You know, would love to have you there. So I took it with both hands. And like Brad said as well, I turned up there and just the level of competition just the amount of talent you see from all the drivers there just um for me i really had to like you know dig deep and you gave me a lot of great great uh, information and technique and analysis in relation to some of the laps i did in the practice session the day before the the qualifiers and the events and uh, as the weekend progressed like um i tried to make as much progress as we could so that will lead us on to another question but we'll come back to that but there's another point i'd mention on that note as well was um just yeah it was such a, it was such an atmosphere brad like i was so impressed with just how well organized it was you know this isn't like some small kind of like uh local thing this is a huge deal and i was seeing i was just chilling out in the car park actually you know between one or two of my splits just trying to catch up with some family friends and when some of the cars come into the car park i was looking at some foreign number plates i saw some dutch number plates i saw some polish ones i saw some american ones and i was like oh my god like this is really a big deal like you know this is really high level high standard high quality racing and another thing as well is i'm just going to shout out bradley shepherd um another one of the drivers that was there uh as well as that johnny as well as that phoebe just all of the team there at formula fast and milton Keynes. they were so professional and so warm and friendly to me as well and even if like let's say for example you want to do karting as more of just a casual thing i'm sure that the the circuit's open as well brad right between like you know monday to sunday as well i'm guessing with yeah. um, staff there too just for people if you live in a milton Keynes area or if you just want to go somewhere that's going to give you great service on that too right yeah, it is. And what's amazing, actually, is the guys there, they spend the whole year running an ordinary rental cart track, you know, that people are there for stag do's and, and corporate events and just to come and have some fun. And then for this one weekend a year, they just transform into a world level competition venue and the staff just turn it on. You know, the, the organization, it, although I founded the thing, I'm not 
completely involved in the day-to-day running of the competition nowadays i i'm there to to help kind of bring the drivers in and try and promote the event but really it's the team on the ground there that do such an amazing job and for this one weekend they just up their game and they just host some of the very best drivers from around the world and they just take it in their stride you know there's no delays everything's not just on time some of the races are happening early which is so rare to see in most most kart events I did one yesterday. I was in a car event yesterday that ran about four or five hours late, just as a bit of a comparison. Um, so anyway, yeah, the, the, you can just go there and, and pay and have some fun. But if you do that in around January, because obviously we did it a, a week ago, but normally the events in January, it was just postponed because of COVID. If you, if you turn up to have a normal event around January, you'll probably find some, some foreign drivers there doing some serious practice as well. <laughs> well, I was learning a lot from them as well. So, you know, maybe that is the best time to go as well if you're you're serious about the, the whole go-karting thing and you want to sharpen up your skills as I was trying to do throughout the week as well. But yes, you know, I must, you know, just shout out everybody there. It was, it was a really lovely experience. And, you know, I didn't know anyone there besides you. And there were times you obviously had to run off and do different bids to make sure the event was running smoothly. And the people I did get to chat with or did get to, you know, have a word with, they were all just so warm and understanding. And, you know, the, I didn't really find any big, major egotistical characters, which is refreshing for an introvert like me. So, yeah, I absolutely loved it. And hopefully I can participate next year if Brad's giving me an invitation because uh, I'd love to, like, try and improve and hopefully be more competitive even next year as well. So that was awesome. But just one other thing as well brad next question i'm gonna ask is um whilst i was having my car park adventures and i was mentioning you know i see like lots of foreign plates i also did see quite a few parents there you know with their kids and you could see even just how much to the little kids like 15 and 16 year olds just there with their um their race suits on and their uh, the alpine or alpine star shoes or you know and their custom made bell helmets just like how much it meant to them and just kind of bringing it to the question like what advice or tips could you give to kids or parents who want to pursue or like support a career in motor racing and how do you go about the um the the elephant in the room of um gaining and securing sponsorships yeah so there's a couple of big questions there so first of all what you the way you go about it is massively dependent on the budget you've got available if you're a lance stroll kind of situation where basically money is no object then you may as well go the traditional extremely expensive route which is just you know go with a very expensive team in the in the outdoor two stroke karting world championship kind of um series and and just throw money at it you know and if you don't win doesn't matter just progress to the next series and if you don't win that doesn't matter just progress to the next series <laughs> and that's what a lot of these guys do but if you're more kind of normal level in terms of the budget, which is what most most people that you and I probably know, um, sure. I don't think there's I don't think there's any shame in entering local rental car series. And depending on where you are in the world, if you're in the UK, certainly we're we're blessed with cart tracks all over the place, and most of these will have, to some degree or another. A championship that they run which is a bit more serious than just the normal arrive and drive sessions that you'll do so the most cost effective way and it's not cheap still it's still quite expensive to go even rental karting but it's it's the only way aside from sim racing um to get into motorsport and i, I don't think there's any shame in going and racing in those series and trying to do as well as possible ideally winning you know getting good enough that you win and then maybe starting to look at more national series and then the european similar series and if you'd like information on that 
send me an email. Just send an email to brad at bradphilpot.com because I can point you in the right direction for all of these things, the local, the regional, the national series. And none of them will break the bank. As, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, to do the British Championship is 190 quid. So it's it's not super cheap, but it's it's somewhere in the realms of possibility for most people. Whereas, you know, going and spending, it could be £10,000 per weekend to be in a decent owner cart team. Um, it's slightly different level of scale there. Um, so that that's what I'd advise. If you, if you want to start out, do that. Now, in terms of sponsorship, hopefully, to begin with, you won't need too much because the vast majority of people are self-sponsored. It's quite tricky to get any kind of serious sponsorship until you've already won stuff. And what you'll tend to find is the the vast majority of sponsors you see on cars all the way up through the single-seater series up to Formula 3, Formula 2, a massive amount of that is personal sponsorship, i.e. dad's company is on the car. So, you know, you'll see, I'm sure we could go through the Formula 2 grid even, and you'll see a load of family names. I'm trying to think. I think Drogovic is quite a good example. I'm pretty sure Drogovic has something like, I'm going to get this wrong, but like Drogovic Construction down the side of the car, because that'll be his, <laughs> his dad's company, or a family, sure. a family member's company, or a family friend. That's normally the way this happens. If you want more kind of genuine sponsorship, as in a company is spending their money to promote themselves because they think you're going to do you're going to do well and therefore as you do better and better through the different series they're going to get more exposure or 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 even if it just makes them feel good because a lot of sponsors are aware they might not get a massive return on their investment but they just want to be part of it and there's various ways you can make them feel involved if that's the route you want there's no substitute for for winning you need to do well so the first thing is to to get good enough that you kind of warrant sponsorship and then you'll find it a heck of a lot easier to approach companies confidently and say, this is who I am. Look at what I've won. I want to take you with me as I win the next series. And in kind of see, think about what you can give them, because it might not be that you can give them millions of TV views. If you're doing a, you know, say, a rental car series or I say a junior single seater series or, or a saloon car, whatever, whatever you end up racing. But you might be able to give them other things. You might be able to give them a a trackside experience that they wouldn't normally be able to buy just by having a ticket to a race. You know, you might be able to get them in the garage, sit them in the race car, or maybe go and do a karting day with their business, you know, and you're there in your, in your race suit with their logo on and they can show you off as the driver that they're sponsoring. And it kind of makes them feel good and makes them look good to the other companies that they're entertaining on an event. There's so many different ways of doing it. We almost need like a seminar to go into it. And it's really <laughs> tricky. It's very, very difficult to convince people to part with their money um, but it's easier if you're winning. So that's my that's my best bit of advice is get good enough to win stuff and then confidently approach people with your ideas of what, what you can give to them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, no truer advice, you know, if you win off the track, if you win on the track, you can win off the track as well. And, you know, even I just even see it with you, like with the M4M, shout out to them as well, just how like we have them on the sim racing events we do. And obviously it's nice just seeing like you wearing the helmet and then their logos on the helmet or the hats or even just like the race suit that you have as well. And you really kind of gain like a practical understanding of how that translates in real life as well. So I can speak from experience just using you as a testament, uh, testimony of that as well. So, so I'm, I'm really glad you've noticed that because 
I, I'm pretty sure I've never approached you and said, Dens, my sponsor is M4M. Um, no. <laughs> please mention them. Like you've, you've just seen like, and you're completely right. I'm hopefully quite obviously trying to promote that sponsors. M4M are, are my kind of main personal sponsor for basically everything I do. And even if they're not necessarily providing a financial input for something, you know, whether it's the sim race or whatever, it doesn't it doesn't cost me anything to still carry their logo with me and talk about them and try and promote them. And then that makes them happier about if we go and do, say, a race at the Nürburgring and it costs tens of thousands of pounds, they're more happy to spend that because they're seeing value in other things we do. It's not just a sticker on a car. That's really the, the biggest slip up most people make in terms of sponsorship or trying to get sponsorship is that they think that the thing that they're offering the sponsor is a logo on a car, which is then going to sell their product. In reality, the logo on the car is basically just the icing on the cake. You should be doing lots of other things in the background to actively make it worth their while to spend their money. So thanks for noticing M4M. Uh, no, honestly, I think it's such a cool company. And like this, without you even telling me, I actually went on their website and I was like finding out that they do stuff with Timber and actually one of the trophies for the sim racing events that we did, like they basically like made or constructed the trophy, which is pretty cool as well, just to see how practically, even though they're not strictly related to motor racing, how they use their services in a way that's connected to what we do. So absolutely, you know, it was super, super, super awesome to see. And I was just very intrigued by that all as well. So um, I'm great that we touched on that question too. So next one, because we have our team principal manager, Georgina Donner, in here as well. She asked, um, Brad, how did that, so I'm going to refer to myself in the third person here, here. How did you rate Denz's weekend in relation to his skills and dedication? Uh, so, Brad, just, just before you answer that question, just know that uh, Georgina said that if I did well, I could have some ice cream. So, so please, Brad, make, make sure I get that that um that Ben and Jerry's and Magnum endorsement from uh, G, uh, Georgina. But also, just to caveat that question on a serious note, like even for like a 26 year old like me that's had no like experience whatsoever in like a real life, you know, racing competition. Let's say if I did like up my skills and I could get up to speed and I became more competitive, even for somebody like me, if it's not even F1, if it was like DTM or SRO GT3 or something like that, is there the potential for somebody like me to get into real life motor racing on a more regular basis? Should, you know, my, my skills improve? Yeah. So first, first things first, give him the ice cream. Um, second, <laughs> you... Your age, okay, you're unlikely to go and become a Formula One driver because, as we all know, most Formula One drivers, if they haven't been testing a Formula One car in their teens, they're probably quite a, a late bloomer. And most, you know, new, most current drivers are, are racing in their very early 20s. Exactly. Having said that, I also know GT drivers who have become very competent, very proficient, fast GT drivers who didn't even start thinking about motorsport until they're in their mid forties. So wow. you definitely have the, you're, you're not too late to forge a, a successful winning career in some kind of motorsport. The, the difficult factor as with all of these things is how much budget you have. You know, if you suddenly, if you then won the Euro millions, I've got no doubt at all. If you wanted to become a successful GT driver, um, you know, based on what I've seen so far, and you know, it's not like you went into British Rental Car Championship thinking you were going to go and win it, but you you were not, um, you know, you didn't embarrass yourself. For someone who had no practice, you did a really good job. I haven't looked at where you were on the final score sheet, but it doesn't really matter. I've seen 
score sheets from other events you've done more more kind of casual ones and you'd normally go along to a kart race and you know wipe the floor with most people it's only when you come to a british championship obviously it's a bit harder but with some practice you definitely could be good enough that if you had the money behind you to do it you could go into gt racing it's just practice it's purely seat time and some good coaching and the the will to improve the thing that most people will fall down on people who have got a lot of money say say someone who's just a millionaire businessman who decides they quite fancy doing some racing they normally lack the the dedication and the will to put the effort in to become really good so they'll normally become competent but they're going to be relatively slow compared to a, a you know a proper driver but you would be different because you're you wouldn't come into it with that attitude. You would put the work, I saw the work you put in to try and get up to speed at, at BRKC last weekend. And you do the same thing and you'd be grateful for the opportunity and you'd listen to people who were better than you at the time and you'd improve. And so I've seen I've seen that kind of situation before. So your your task is basically find a load of money. That's that's the okay. thing you Georgina. need to do. <laughs> we heard what, jo- what Brad said here, so we just need to get that money, and then I'll be um you know driving those nice GT cars. But no, thank you, Brad, and and please continue as well. No, that's really it. That that's it. Like that's the that's the story. You you need to become a successful media personality, um, and you know your YouTube channel needs to earn you a lot of money, and then and and then you know bag a good sponsor at the same time. And I will coach you and we'll get you to like world GT level. No problem. Oh, thank you, Brad. And just to kind of add meat to the bone on that question as well, like was in relation to just the karting aspect and the driving side of it as well, like where did you think I could improve or, or make time? Because what I'll say with driving these karts is that, you know, it's definitely not as easy as people look at it from the outside. You know, there is an art of like managing the, the oversteer because it's like an indoor circuit. It's got a very slippy surface. Uh, essentially with the carts as well they do have a bit of grunt to them but you can't waste the power either if you basically break too much and you lose the momentum it takes the card maybe a couple of seconds of inertia to build up the revs and get through the corners and also drifting is a very easy thing to do in a cart as well again because of the hard compound of tires so the thing i at least felt from my perspective was that i knew the lines i needed to be on was just finding the balance of how hard i could push into the corners how early to break and when to tap the brake to agitate the rear to pivot and like almost give me that that initial rotation i was looking for for some of the tight hairpins and putting it all together more consistently too but from the driving coach side what did you make and what areas do you think i could improve on yeah so the tricky thing with with karting in particular is i'm not riding on board with you you know sat next to you like like you could in some race cars to observe every input and that uh, that kind of thing and and although I've seen you're on board, you know, I was literally watching you from outside as well. The answer is of what you need to change or what you, what you can improve on is going to be a really boring answer, but it's, it'll just be a little bit everywhere. It'll be uh, perfecting the precision. You know, that I'm sure there were times where you could have been closer to the barriers that you weren't. Uh, and that's purely just, again, seat time. The When I came back and did some practice, having been away for a year or so from that particular track, I was also you know, wasting time, not getting close enough to certain barriers. Um, it'll be learning how the tire temperature evolves over a stint and, and making the most of it all the time. So as you found in these particular carts that we were racing, when they start a race, the tire temperature is way too low. And every lap you do, it gets a little bit quicker. And generally the fastest laps happen right at the end because you know, you're just closer to the optimal tire temperature. But all the way along 
that race for the for the whole 20 minutes or however long a particular race is you need to be getting the maximum possible even if even if it's a lower maximum than at the end of the race you need to be getting the maximum you can at that point on that lap and it's like like i said before it's just practice it's it'd be very difficult I and mean, it would be overly critical of me to say to you Denge, you're turning in too early for turn four you you need to turn the wheel more smoothly here because these are things which you would naturally do once you had more practice it's sure. it's not a case of it's not as easy as saying well you're breaking five meters too early break five meters later because you're not you're if we looked at a data overlay not that these cars had had data um systems on them but if we did you're probably talking you know 10 15 centimeters difference what you're doing from what someone who's racing at the front of the final is doing so it's it's small tweaks that you almost can't think about you need to just do it more and do it do it with really good people as well because they naturally kind of drag you along to their level just by being on track with really good people and and you will just naturally find that little bit of extra pace so so yeah i'm i'm not going to be i'm too specific but i i also i don't know whether you'll think this it looked to me on the alternative layout because for those listening who don't know it's probably most people um in this particular event we're talking about there are two different track layouts there's the normal one that everyone gets to practice and then there's a there's a new layout that nobody has seen until they race it, which you do for two of the races to try and take away some of the advantage that local drivers would have from doing lots of practice on that same track. Um, and it looked to me like th- that track was definitely more physical, more brutal. And it looked to me like you were being thrown around quite a lot through the twisty central section. Um, so I don't know whether physical preparation in terms of just being a bit fitter would maybe yeah. help you in that respect, because quite a lot of laps to to hang on for and obviously the more that you feel you're having to try to to hang on to the cart the less precise you'll be and the less uh the less perfect or your lines will be and all that kind of thing it takes away some of your concentration when you're when you're feeling a bit tired from it so i don't know whether you'd agree with that one 100 percent on that one bro because again and this is where i really have to shout out the go-kart drivers and just drivers in general because you know people might look at a go-kart and say oh well you know it's just like a cart with four wheels how hard can it be but when you're really trying to drive these things on the limit it's physically demanding as well because you're having to wear like the fireproof like overalls on top you've got a helmet obviously on top of your head too and obviously i had the um the, the gopro camera and just physically as well the amount of forces i was feeling in the cart i could feel my rib cage like literally compressing against the side bolstering which was a bit uncomfortable after a while but again that's just like muscle memory and like training and fitness as well and also just like cardiovascular kind of um endurance too that's not to get too fatigued or not to like tie yourself out in the early stages and even just my upper body strength as well i noticed that i needed to do a lot more work on that to stop feeling as fatigued because as you rightfully mentioned too and what another thing i need to point out to a lot of people listening is that go-karts don't have power steering so you're essentially pushing the weight of the cart the fuel in the cart and your own body weight, which after what we put on the helmet and the race suit on me with my shoes, I came up to about 84 kilos alone, you know, can become quite physically demanding too. And I, I wanted to save that question and I, I will come back to that later on. But yeah, this even physical conditioning makes a huge difference. <laughs> and I remember I felt so embarrassed. Like on the first practice session, I jumped out of the car and you're like, okay, Denzel, fix this corner. You could improve in this corner. And there's me, just like a pig, just like a fish out of water. Like, oh my God, I was turning into turn six. I was just completely out of breath as well. So 
I think you were spot on the money there too, that it's as much as it is physical as well as it is mental and having the knowledge and the physical abilities too to sustain that performance throughout, you know, such a competitive and high intensity race as well. So I definitely agree with you on that. But um, yeah, to, to kind of actually talk about the driving performance element of it too, Brad, as, as a racing driver and as a driver performance coach, what element of the job do you enjoy most and um, who are your favorite drivers and what traits do they have that you believe make them successful drivers? Okay. So, so the part I enjoy the most of my job is, is driving. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not, although, although you mentioned I'm a, a driver coach, I'm a, a currently a, a licensed um, racing instructor and I, I instructed for well over a decade. My normal day job now is actually tire testing. And actually I'm off to the South of France tomorrow to do some more tire testing as part of why I was a little bit late getting onto the podcast today. Um, I, I enjoy the driving bit. So I enjoy having a fresh set of sticky tires and, and going and setting lap times, which is thankfully quite a large part of my job at the moment. Um, in terms of drivers that I like, I assume we're talking about kind of Formula One. Um, yeah, or, or Brad, like honestly, you can also shout out just like, you know, like GT drivers, IndyCar drivers, any discipline, even like local go-karters, you know, like it'd be interesting to hear your takes on that too. Okay, well, okay then. Let, let's go. Let's go local go karts. This isn't quite so local. This is multiple world champion. But there's there's a driver called Ruben Butens who you will have seen Dutch. at our event last weekend. And oh, it's yes. funny when, when you've given me the option to talk about Formula One drivers or, or any other driver, but it's people like this that who have, have basically come from um, you know not a particularly wealthy background and have gone and won world championships and consistently kept that level um, in equal machinery, which is what you don't tend to get in most motorsport um yeah most people have never heard of this guy but for me he's definitely like one of the best drivers in the world um and i like i just like that he's also a nice guy and is very dedicated to his fitness you know he was out at our event last weekend he did did the practice day and then was posting that he'd just done a 5k around milton Keynes. you know just in the (laughs) evening just to just to do that as well which anyway so that that's that'd be a good pick in terms of f1 level um as you know dens i'm a I'm a Hamilton fan and that's more a way that's more a case of liking the way he goes about the the racing aspect of things how how he's quite fair um certainly in you know in recent years he's the one that's um that's kind of driving by the the driving etiquette rule book he he still does what he can get away with within the rules yeah. but he he is respectful within that which i quite like as well obviously it's extremely fast so that that would be a couple i could probably name some german gt drivers but um they're going to mean nothing to anyone but there's a there's a lot of talent out there that most people will never have heard of but in their respective fields whether it's whether it's you know being a specialist at the the nurburgring nordschleifer or a world-class indoor go-kart driver there's people who are amazing drivers in their fields and if you if you put any Formula One driver, including the my favorite ones, including the best ones, into that situation, they would probably really struggle initially, at least, to get on terms with with those drivers. I've seen that firsthand. I've seen um, people like I guess it would have been Nico Rosberg at the time jump into a rental car against regular drivers uh, at that particular series or or track and really struggle. Um, <laughs> so anyway, th- that that would be my they'd be my picks. Awesome. And 
Also, Brad, just uh, you touched on there as well, just like being like, you know, like uh, in your role as well, testing tires and stuff like that as well. Me and George, you know, having this debate as to what is more like, I would say, dangerous. And I guess motorsport in general is inherently dangerous. It has improved over the years. Of course, there is an element in anything that you do. But we were having this debate as to what would be perceived as more dangerous, like in your eyes, because like, is it a test driver that is like subdued to probably more danger or like a full-time racing driver that's uh, subjected to more danger? Because my kind of thing was, well, test drivers usually have to test things at more radical like elements, like, you know, a lot of the, the, the earlier guys in the sixties and seventies that were test drivers after like test setups on cars are really like, you know, almost extreme and if something went wrong it could put the driver into a lot of trouble but then on top of that sometimes in formula one you see freak accidents happen or fortunately you know things happen where it could might have been avoided but yeah what was your take on the whole danger thing too it's not a big question but something that came up whilst we're having a discussion too yeah you could argue that either way i think because you're right test drivers are um they're testing prototype products or um or vehicles you know so from my point of view quite often i'm out on track on on tires which are not yet road legal because they haven't been through the the test required to become road legal because that's what i'm doing (laughs) in in the test so um if so if the engineer the designer has done something wrong or pushed something a bit too far you know you could you could have a failure um i've been quite fortunate i I haven't actually ever had that happen because to get a tire in, in my case because that's what i'm testing to get that to the stage where it's been physically built and it's out on circuit being tested there's quite a few steps to go through and they generally know what they're doing so the worst that i'm going to have is probably okay this tire there's too much understeer on this particular set rather than an actual blow up but i have seen that you know you do get things like tread joint separation where um for to to keep it simple it's it is basically what it sounds like where the tread starts to peel away from itself there's a join at some point on the tread obviously um and it, and it starts to peel away but normally you'd notice that quite early and, and you hear it and you pull over so on, on the flip side race drivers in a race formula one drivers they're kind of they're racing a prototype anyway the car they're racing is is a cutting edge prototype and obviously they're going very very fast much much faster than the speeds that i would be doing in my day job for example but then you could argue again, well, they've got full medical crew on site. And despite the cars being very, very fast, they're also extremely safe. And, you know, the the circuits are up to a very high standard. And so there's a lot of kind of uh, medical and safety assistance there. Whereas I could be out on a test track and it might, and I could have an accident. And it might be five minutes before someone notices that I haven't come back around again. And uh, actually there's some smoke rising from a corner around the back of the track somewhere. So there's you could argue it either way i think sure. you'd have nowadays thankfully you have to be reasonably unlucky to find yourself in in a particularly dangerous situation um but you know accidents happen in, in both of these examples and um you've just got to try not to be the person that's involved sure and you know i think i think that's a great summary and kind of a synopsis of both kind of events and yeah it's interesting to see kind of which one and like the characteristics or traits of each one as well inherently but yeah i think you answered that question very well and speaking of questions we're going to bring in two fan questions we had in just before the uh interview proceeded so we've got one from naomi her attack on twitter is naomi with two eyes 412 shout out to naomi her question to you brad was do you have any pre-race or post-race rituals or habits and if so what are they yeah okay so 
I don't know whether it's a ritual as much as just general kind of prep, but I try and be ready to go quite early. I'm probably one of the earliest people to get my helmet on, you know, balaclava helmet, suit, boots, make sure I've got everything, um, hands device on. And and there's a, there's a good reason. It's because I've had nightmares for years about not being able to get ready in time for my stint or the start of the race or whatever. It's like a real... It's like a real fear at the back of my mind of missing out on a race because it's taken me too long to get into my kit. So that's probably a bit of a ritual, you could say. I just get ready early. And I have even been at the point where I've gone to jump in. You know, my teammates jumped out of an endurance car and it's, I'm just about to jump in. And I've realized, although I've been stood around for 20 minutes with my kit on, I just forgot to put my hands device on. It's still on the shelf. And so it's that kind of thing that can easily catch you out. Um, other other rituals, I guess, I do like a very gentle warm up. I like to jump up and down a bit, just kind of get the blood flowing. I don't want to get in the car and my heart rate suddenly have to be raised. I want to, I want it to be elevated, ready in, you know, before I get in, I want to, I want to feel kind of um, in the zone because I'm just, my heart rate's just going a bit before. So I'd say that's it. I don't have anything else crazy. I try not to drink too much caffeine before the start. Sure. I don't want to need a wee in the middle of the race, but you always sure. do anyway. It doesn't matter what you do you will you will get in the car and you'll think oh, I, I really need to pee um so anyway that's it that, those are my rituals <laughs> fair enough and you know yeah i guess as long as you don't do a michael schumacher in the, in the suit or in the seat then it's fine but uh also just to kind of caveat that question like and you don't have to say any names either i wouldn't expect you to but what are some of the weirdest rituals or like or like um post-race or pre-race habits you've seen other drivers do as well because there are some funky ones out there that's a good question. I can't really think of any off the top of my head. I don't think people, I don't think most people do anything particularly weird. I think you'd, you'd need to have seen something very specific to, to remember that. I, I don't think any teammate I've ever had, and they tend to obviously be the people that you're seeing in the garage that would do a ritual of some kind. I don't remember anyone doing anything particularly strange i think that probably the strangest thing i see is I've, I've had teammates who are just mega relaxed you know they are more than happy just to chuck on a helmet as the car's rolling down the pit lane <laughs> and they're about to jump in and I, I find that a bit weird i'd say um being too laid back but I'm, I'm afraid i don't have anything more weird and wacky to tell you sure that's that's fine you know and yeah just like i guess it depends on kind of who you're with and what their just characteristics are as well and like some people are more relaxed because i guess like the, the, the drama for them comes when they're inside the car and like you and like I kind of consider myself quite similar to you in that way I just like everything being organized ahead of time I don't want any drama I don't want any kind of mishaps happening as I get into the car or before I just want everything to be just nice and sturdy and predictable so when I do go on track it's just I can just focus 110% on the job in hand so absolutely agree with you on that one and okay we'll move on to the second fan question we've had so this is from Rhett Jackson and his ad is Rhett underscore Baylor he also works with me quite a lot on the DRS Zone podcast so Shout out to them. Make sure you check them out. This question to you, Brad, was uh, how do you recover from close calls or crashes you've experienced whilst driving? And what current F1 driver on the grid would you say your driving style mirrors the most? Okay, so recovering from close calls, um, you hopefully you don't have too many. Um, you know, part of your job is to is to avoid having accidents. And if, if you're a driver like me that hasn't ever had a particularly big budget behind their career you can't afford a single crash because a crash is probably the end of your season let alone that race um 
so recovering from them i mean i have had crashes you you don't have any choice but to just get back on with it so um the the one example that springs to mind is in formula palmer audi which is a it was a, it doesn't exist anymore but it, it's this is going to date me this is going to show you how old i am but it's a series from kind of early 2000s to maybe the early 2010s that was roughly similar level to formula three um different different car a bit less aero a bit more power but it's a single seater series anyway that's reasonably quick and i i had a, a crash in morning warm-up at snetterton where i just touched a wheel on the grass on the approach to turn one um it was kind of you know early early-ish in the morning damp grass and went straight to the wall at turn one backwards ripped a corner of the car off it was a pretty hefty crash and the, the way you recover from it is you just wait for it to get fixed and then get back in and go again. There's, there's like no substitute for just getting back on the horse, basically. Um, and in terms of the second part of that question, which um, which current F1 driver's driving style would I be most similar to? It's very difficult because I don't really know all of their driving styles. Um, and you just want to say whoever the fastest is, is that. <laughs> I'm the same as them. Um, my my driving style is, is I, don't know, I don't know how you put it in a box. It's as fast as... Uh, is, as much risk as is required without adding any extra risk. So I find it very hard, for example, to get the the fastest possible lap in practice because it doesn't matter. When it matters, my brain allows me to use a bit of extra risk. And that probably is bred from, you know, my entire career not being able to afford to waste the car, you know, not being able to break it, uh, not being able to afford to break it and then get it fixed. So you kind of you ration the amount of risk that you're allowing yourself to use and then obviously when it matters if you're in a race situation or if you're in qualifying or whatever you're up to maximum so i'm trying to think of who would be like that who is relatively risk averse tends to not have accidents but it does it when it matters i was gonna um, say like to me brad like when I look at your driving style, I've looked at YouTube videos, even just live, because I remember like on the final round, we were in the same group together. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to look at Brad for a couple of laps. Like, to me, it's very like Hamilton Button-esque almost. Like, you don't take, like, just like Lewis, he's never involved in many crashes because he always bears him. You even see him sometimes if he has a whip of understeer. He would just turn out of the corner to rebalance the car, like re uh, shuffle just like the, the focus and to prevent the car from spinning out or losing control so i definitely see that but you're super smooth as well man like sometimes when i was coming out of the corners i was like holding onto the go-kart trying to not make it like you know slide into a wall or like stuff like that but would you i just noticed it always just appeared to be this one input like wham wham and i don't know like it's very michael schumacher very jensen button esque as well to me in that regard as well and you know those are some serious guys too so yeah I, if i had to kind of comment on that i would say mix of lewis button and and michael which are actually my favorite drivers too i'll take that then that sounds good yeah those guys <laughs> awesome so yeah and um it's funny that like um Rhett asked that question because it superseded one of the ones i was going to ask you but going back to that like formula one audi or like the formula palmer kind of thing that you had too how did you recalibrate your brain to learn from that mistake because sometimes i think mentally as well like it can be so tricky when something bad like that happens and you mentioned that there almost wasn't enough time for you to really process it you just had to kind of just 
get on with it. But yeah, like how how do you pick yourself up and how do you prevent making like the same mistakes in the future? Uh, okay, so it's important to probably realize why it happened. And for me, in that particular in- instance, it was pretty obvious. Um, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, looking at the onboard, it's like, uh, you were, you know, a few centimeters too far left. So just don't do that again. And so you probably do overcompensate. You probably give that part of the track a bit too much of a wide berth on the next run. But gradually you you reset back to the correct amount and you just always have at the back of your mind, this is a place where it went wrong before. Why did that happen? Just don't do it. If it's something that's out of your control, that's probably a bit harder. You know, if you have a, a failure, a front wing failure or something going into a fast corner, that might be a bit harder to get over because there's nothing you can do differently to avoid that other than just not going out again. So that I, I think that's when it's a driver error, as long as you know why it happened and it's something that you can change, that's that's something you just make sure you don't do it again. That's how you improve any element of your driving. You know, if you missed an apex on one lap, you make sure, okay, I know I missed that. I probably went in too fast or I turned in too late or whatever. I just won't do that again. And every time from that point on, would you do it right? But when it's something that is out of your control, um, something's gone wrong, something's broken or something random happened, some other random element, I don't know, someone dropped oil on the track and and you had no way of knowing that that was there. That's probably a bit of a harder thing to get over. Um, so yeah, that's in terms of how to recalibrate yourself. You just make sure that you know why it happened and you just don't do it again. Sure. Okay, man. I guess that is just life in general. You know, when you do make a mistake or something happens, you try to understand the mistake and rationalize the reasons behind it. And then next time you go to do it, you do it slightly differently to make sure that you try and get the outcome that you look you're after. So it, it definitely makes sense. And I think you can apply that logic not only just to racing, but also just other things in life too. When you're trying to improve and get those marginal gains, so that makes sense. And um, Georgina's cheekily like gave me a, a kind of dm as well as we're recording this she also has a fan question brad last of the fan questions wanted to find out do you see yourself more as a racer or more of like a, a coach in that, in that regard um by by necessity I, I would be more of a, a coach by by necessity i'd be more of a test driver and that kind of thing but that isn't that isn't what you what i'd say i i like the most or or it's not by choice. That's purely by you've got to earn money. Um, if it was, if it was entirely by choice, all I'd be doing every day would be racing or or practicing for a race, um, or preparing for a race. So, coaching or instructing or testing, it's it's a good job to have if you need to earn money and stay sharp for racing at the same time. But if I had my way. I would very rarely do those things and it would all be racing. So I'd, I'd say I feel more comfortable, more at home doing the racing, but something has to pay the bills. And so sure. unless you are fortunate to be one of the the kind of stroll, Norris, Latifi kind of budgeted people, uh, most people have to earn a living. I'm quite fortunate that most of mine is done on a track anyway. Of course. And I think that's a great answer as well. And it's all encompassing and the best, like it's the best of both worlds. No Hannah Montana there. But uh, all right. So the next question, Brad, is uh, how do you deal with the pressure and expectations that come with racing competitively? And, you know, like when things don't go to plan or, or, or when like you've given, you know, you've given it your all, but still it was just that bit shy of kind of like, you know, getting you the top spot or getting you that pole position. How do you bounce back on the mental side of that? 
So I've got quite a recent example of this, probably. Um, last weekend, I don't know whether you watched qualifying for the final in our race uh, in, in the BRKC, but I massively messed up my qualifying lap. It's the it's the one shot you have of the weekend to drive the same cart as everyone else. Everybody does one lap and everybody's watching because it's the final 10 drivers that have got to that point. And I just made a mistake, break too late, locked up a little bit, hadn't done it the entire weekend. In fact, I hadn't done that that mistake the entire practice week. And when it mattered the most in the final with everyone watching, um, I just made a mistake. And the way you bounce back from that is you plan that obviously you, you have to get on with that event as it happens because you know, you're in the middle of an event and, and you need to race, but you're still thinking about that afterwards. And I still, I was still thinking about that into this week, like, Oh, why, why, why did you do that? But the way you, the way you bounce back from that, the the way you reset mentally is you plan the next race, you know, you think, what are we doing next? And similar answer to, you know, the, the crash in the formula Palmer Andy we were talking about, you make sure you don't do it again and you give yourself something else to focus on. So, um, you you control the things that you can control and something I can control is making sure that if I'm in that same situation again, I don't get too greedy. And that's that's what happened to me in that situation. I just tried to gain more time than I probably needed to. Just the risk reward ratio was a little bit off. And um and, I, and you just make sure that you refine that, just recalibrate it so that next time the outcome is a bit better. So um hope hopefully that answers that. It was a great answer. And I think as well for myself too, like when something doesn't go to plan rather than just dwelling on it and like becoming even more incessantly negative about it, sometimes what it's good to do is just like, I wouldn't say move on, but to just look at how you're going to change it the next time and to just ensure the next time when it does happen or, you know, the next opportunity you do get, you just make it a lot better. And, and that way as well, you're actually moving forward rather than just staying at the same level or dwelling on the same thing all the time. So I think that was the perfect answer. And like, you could take away a lot from that response that you gave alone. So I, I'm satisfied with that. And um, another question. So um, driving these cards, like they can be quite physical, the cars and the carts as well. Do you have like a routine for keeping like, you know, the physical condition up? And to caveat that question as well, what approach do you take to learning new circuits? Because, um, you know, for example, the Nürburgring is, it. well, I'm going to say this anyway, I'm going to put my chest out there because I firmly believe it is. It is probably the longest circuit that exists. It probably has the biggest amount of corners. And just to remember every single corner and what approach you take, it must be quite challenging, you know, especially for people doing it in real life as well, not just the sim world. So yeah, how do you deal with like, you know, keeping your physical condition up and how, what approach do you take to learning new circuits? So physically, I'm quite fortunate. I've always been reasonably athletic. Um, I've never massively struggled with my weight or anything like that. And so a motorsport, I listened to an interview with Kevin Magnuson um, on the Formula One Beyond the Grid um, podcast uh, about a week ago. And he he said a similar thing you can get by in motorsport without being completely fit. You can, you can get by, but it's a big help if you are fit. And if you have looked after yourself and until you get to formula one level where, or, or, you know, high level single seaters where it's your neck, that's the limiting factor. Most other things, as long as you've, you've done some preparation, the limiting factor is kind of your, your endurance and your tolerance to heat and a little bit more like the kind of fitness that you need for a 5k run, although not specifically your legs so much, but just the ability to cope with that level of exertion without feeling too tired 
and it sapping your concentration. So the kind of things I do is I, I regularly run. Um, more recently, I've been going to the gym and, and doing kind of weights and resistance training and that kind of thing. But basically, the fitter the, the fitter you can be, and you're talking kind of general fitness, the easier you'll then find the racing and the it's it's specific neck training that you then need to do if you're racing something with enough grip that that's a problem most race series that most people will have the chance to do um the neck isn't so much of a problem although having said that some karting i did last year um i was racing in a a rotax max in in a very very difficult championship very quick karts the amount of grip there meant that I did seriously have to specifically train my neck because after three laps, I couldn't keep my head up. It was that much grip and that's in oh. karting. So um, anyway, that gives you an idea of how, how much that needs to be trained in, in single seaters. Um, second part of your question. I've forgotten what it was. Just so, ask me the second. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, you know, like what approach do you take to learning new circuits? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the Nürburgring. Well, you yourself have learned the Nürburgring because you, you raced in, our 12 hour race we did on in the sim um a couple of months ago so i think you should you probably know the track now don't you You know which corner is yeah. coming next so that's an achievement in itself so that's one way is use, using simulators um if the track that you're going to race at is available in a sim and even if it's not even if it's a game you know it's not like a full-on sim if you're just trying to learn what corner comes next you don't necessarily have to learn every bump and and every minute detail on a sim you can help yourself a lot just by learning the general layout and i think driving it even if it's just with a with a controller rather than a steering wheel and a simulator that helps it sink in more than just watching a video i never found it very easy to learn tracks from watching videos they'd always feel different when you then arrived in real life whereas i've learned plenty of tracks on a simulator including the nurburgring and then arrived and it felt like second nature it felt like home my first lap, in fact, it's even on my YouTube channel, my first laps of the Nürburgring um, when I raced for Peugeot back in 2013, I'd, I'd never been there before until I turned up in a, in a car they'd lent me to go and drive it for real. And it felt exactly like the simulator. I knew exactly what was coming next. And then from that point onwards, you're just refining it. You know, there are things that you'll encounter in real life that you just can't see in the simulator. But that's how, um, you know, obviously do watch videos. I still would watch on board videos as prep. Um, and, and then if you can drive it on the simulator, do it. And in even then walking the track, not maybe not the Nürburgring, but most <laughs> tracks. a couple of days, man. <laughs> yeah, it would take quite a while. Most tracks you can turn up and depending on how long they are, you can also walk the track or cycle around it. And obviously you see Formula One drivers doing that on the beginning of a race weekend. It's not that they're necessarily learning the layout. Hopefully they've done that prep before they get there. But they're just looking for like all the details, looking for where the drains are, looking for quite how harsh the curbs are, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I learned them. I've, I've always loved learning new tracks. I've I found it very easy to within you know within a, a lap or two have a you know ninety nine percent understanding, and then the the final percent is is where the detail comes in. And, and you yourself had last weekend, you had to learn a brand yep. new track. <laughs> we both did that neither of us had ever seen before until our qualifying lap you do your outlap in qualifying and then you're expected to know the track by the flying lap so just an outlap is, is all you get so doing competitions like that really help teach you how to learn a track 
exactly and yet you know just to kind of like elaborate on that as well like that was so cool and i wish that format was probably brought into some other motorsport disciplines because it's a genius idea like you know there are some circuits where you can configure the layout differently silverstone bahrain to name a few and it was so cool you know just to have that kind of thing of okay so there's a normal circuit which everyone's had at least one opportunity like me to practice but then midway into the event they're going to basically section it off because they're going to change the layout of the circuit. And when I say, guys, that the layout of the circuit was different, it was completely different. Like, to me, the original circuit felt a bit like Malaysia, like a couple of slow-speed corners and then some long kind of, like, uh, high-speed corners. But then the the kind of random kind of surprise circuit that was thrown in in the middle, it was like a handling circuit. And you really had to be quite quick on learning where the new apexes were. Another thing that we're going to touch on as well, Brad, was just um, the lines you're using. Because for the normal circuit, you could just like stay on the inside where all the grip was because that's where all the carts were going. But one thing that I took as a really good nugget of information from you before I went out on the, the random um, track layout was um, because they had shifted some of the barriers, essentially where the racing line was now was where like some of the marbles were in these carts, which people also underestimate how even on, in carts, marbles are a huge thing. And as soon as you go offline, you start to slide and lose like traction. But yeah, you just have to adapt to your driving style and try different lines that were not there before. And that all comes as part of the learning process of learning the circuit as well. And the more you, the more racing you've done in your life, the more tracks you've driven, the more situations you've been in, generally you'll have encountered pretty much every variation on what a corner can look like. And from, so it, you've got a really big data bank of you've, you've seen this before, even though it wasn't here at this track, you've, you've experienced a corner very much like this that led on to another corner very much like the next one. And so you kind of, you, you use your experience. It really helps to, to have that baseline knowledge that you can then apply to, you've almost got like a menu of corner types of varying tightness. Um, and you can then apply that to whatever new situation you're faced with. Exactly. You know, and it's so true. And like you said as well, it's just that wealth of experience and, and kind of a situational awareness of different types of corners that you have like a bank for. And then when you're in a situation where it's the first time having to tackle it, you have a rough idea and you've got the muscle memory of how to tackle that type of corner. So I, I definitely agree with you on that for sure. And okay, um, we'll move on to the next question, which is uh, surprisingly F1 related because you haven't done too much F1 related uh, questions today. But Brad, what's been your take on these new highly revised ground effect cars? Do you, do you think that they are a success in what the FIA were trying to achieve? And is, would you, I, I mean, it's very early to say, but do you prefer this new regulation of cars or is there a particular generation of cars that you look at maybe from the past and you say, wow, I want to have a go in that? I don't want to um, sound like a typical old person by saying, oh, it's better than <laughs> With the roast into so glasses. I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid doing that. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not averse to change. And, and I think they did need to be changed. I'm not massively a fan of the current cars yet. Maybe that maybe I'll come around to them. They seem really cumbersome to me so far. They don't, they don't look like agile race cars. They, they look like trucks that are really bad in the tight, twisty corners. So F1 cars are bigger than they've ever been and heavier than they've ever been and these cars do seem to cope with high-speed corners quite well but they don't look fun to drive to me they don't look very nimble so i think we are missing something but obviously with the drive towards everything being safer that tends to come with a bit of weight 
Um, there are other reasons why the cards have got heavier as well, but I don't think we're. I think we're going to struggle to go backwards in terms of you know lightening the cards. So we might we might just be stuck with this. And maybe when the teams have refined their designs of, of this generation of car, they will become a bit more nimble and a bit nicer to watch. So up until now, I'm kind of undecided. I, I haven't I haven't seen enough. So let's see them on some more circuit types and see how they see how they evolve. Uh, and in terms of like uh, an era that I've liked or i'd prefer i do like seeing the the early lewis hamilton era kind of 2007 2008 era cars where they're small very very easy to change direction um they look they still look really complex despite you know it's, it's quite a long time ago now those those generation of cars um but yeah i, I don't mind i whatever whatever the current cars are i'm kind of cool with i just i'm not 100 sold on this generation yet Maybe once all the porpoisings all kind of taken care of, or or maybe in a year or two when when the designs have been tweaked slightly and they've come to more of a a common conclusion on what the best design is, maybe maybe they'll be a bit nicer to watch. So uh, I'm I'm kind of Formula One's changed drastically over the years, so I'm definitely not someone that says it has to be like this because it used to be like this. You know, the cars used to some cars had covered wheels. Um, the engine size has changed massively. E- everything that could possibly have changed has changed at some point. So I'm, I don't even care whether there's a, a canopy over the top. In fact, I think I'd probably prefer if we had a canopy over the drivers if it made it safer. So there, there's all sorts of changes that I'm fine with. I just wish they looked a bit more nimble. That's my only gripe. Yeah, and I, I second you on that one as well, Brad, because even in testing, you were seeing the drivers having these really clumsy, slow speed, like lockups, the nose, the car barely wanting to turn in on any given day of Sunday. I agree with you that, you know, the lack of aero they have now has made the cars just feel like a bit lazy and lackadaisical. But as you've rightfully said, you know, it's something that they could potentially continue to work on to make them more agile and nimble and slow speed corners. And also, I second you as well on in relation to that aero of just um you know cool f1 cars too the, the mp4-22 and uh, mp4-23 which is the ones you're referring to 2007-8 really cool like they had like i guess a shorter wheelbase to what we're used to now and the low aerodynamic fairings as well which made them look like spaceships and yeah those cars are really cool as well and obviously that vodafone livery is just uh yeah probably one of the top 10 and we'll probably have to bring you on brad another day you know for like a top 10 liveries of just like f1 cars because there's been some interesting ones out there as well. But, um, okay, we're going to go into the fantasy uh, question. Let me be a fantasy. All right, I'm going to stop singing. um, uh, The kind of fantasy question I wanted to put forward to you, Brad, is um, you wake up tomorrow and um, management give you a ring. And you say, Brad, just got a call from, um, you know, Lawrence Stroh, for example, and he wants to wants to venture into any other motorsport discipline, whether it's GT freeze, whether it's uh, NASCARs, you know, I know you're not going to be doing those, Indy cars, any kind of given motorsport, and um, you would be the perfect driver for that, uh, in, like, adventure. Like, uh, what racing discipline would you want to, or racing series would you like to race in that you've never competed in before, excluding Formula One, because I know you'd say that. Yeah, so I actually wouldn't say Formula One because I'm Uh, way too old and nowhere near the fitness level required to even do one lap justice. You'd you'd do it for experience, but you'd you'd go into that knowing that you were going to be terribly slow compared to someone (laughs) who had who had done the the prep, which is you know decades of single seater racing up to that point. Um, the answer is pretty simple for me. Um, it'd be GT3 
racing. It would be um, Nürburgring specifically GT3 racing in a series called NLS, which is the Nürburgring Langstrecken series. It's basically just the, the regular GT championship that happens on the Nürburgring. But really, any any GT3 um, on any track, you know, Le Mans is adopting GT3 as their GT cars, um, replacing GTE. So GTE. you could do that. It's just super versatile. You can race so many different types of, you know, different shapes of car um, on so many different tracks around the world. And, you know, compared to a Formula One car, obviously it's very, very slow. But compared to anything anyone or any normal person has ever experienced, it's mind-blowingly fast. And um, that's that's the thing for me. I'd like to be out there in a in one of the Mercedes AMG GT GT3s um, or, or any oh, GT3 man. car. <laughs> You answered my next question because I was going to say, oh, the bunch, because you've got the Mercedes GT3 Evo, you've got Porsche 911 GT3s, you've got the Lamborghini Huracan. Which one was your best? But you've already picked the, the AMG GT. Uh, why that car in particular out of interest? Just being up close. I mean, I like them all, to be honest, but just being up close to them in, in the pits, in the series that I've raced in most recently, they're, they're kind of mixed in with us. So although I was in a touring car um, category, all the cars are out together. And so there's probably 30 GT3s out there with you. And they're just, they, when those Mercedes come past, it's, it feels like thunder. The, um, the, the way, GT, right? the way it shakes your body when that, when that engine drives past you, but you know, I, I'm not going to be saying no to a Porsche or a, or an Audi R8 or any of those, but, um, sure. Yeah. I've just got a bit of a thing for that Mercedes. Oh, well, he wouldn't be the only one. Even for me, when I was doing like my GT3 racing on the sim, like that was just my favorite car because of the naturally aspirated V8. That the sound is just so thunderous, as you mentioned too. And also front engine. So um, for my driving style anyway, I just like the stability of like a front engine car where it's maybe a bit more understeery, but you have more stability in like high-speed corners compared to like a Porsche or like a Lamborghini where the weight is predominantly on the mid to rear part of like, the the axle as well but yeah interesting very interesting take and then a more sensible and without me doing the horrendous singing georgina as a fantasy questions asks well not even really fantasy she just asked um who do you think is the greatest f1 driver to never win a championship and why and i thought that was a really good question yeah so i saw you'd sent this question and that did really make me think um because it's it's really tough but i i, I thought about an answer and, and i'm gonna say it's going to be someone who's on the current grid who hasn't yet won a championship. And, and that's because I, I really believe apart from a couple of exceptions who you can probably guess who I'm on about the, <laughs> yep. the current formula one drivers are probably the fastest slash best drivers of all time. And I'm even comparing against drivers who have multiple championships from the past because everyone's so much better prepared now. And I think you could put, even Lance Stroll, who I don't rate at all um, for reference, you could put him up against a good driver from the 90s or 80s, and he'd probably wipe the floor with them. In I don't mean because they're old. I mean, if you put them yeah. in their prime next yeah. to each other, because he's done way more. He's done lots and lots of prep. He's probably much fitter than they would have been and has had way more opportunity than they would have done in their time. Anyway, that's an opinion. And maybe Lance Stroll's a bit of an extreme example, but I think if you could probably uncontroversially go through most of the rest of the grid and make that claim. Um, so anyway, so answer your question, the best driver not to have won a world championship, I'm going to say is Charles Leclerc. And I think he probably Ooh. will not be on that list shortly. Shortly. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, he's been doing so well. And with Charles, I really like him as just a driver to, to support and follow too. Because you see in progression with Charles, like he came into the sport and, um, you know, even in his personal life, he's been through some really tough moments because his dad passed away during his like early F3, F2 career. Then he lost his uh, godfather and Jules Bianchi. He's been through a lot of trauma, even recently with Anton Hubert as well, kind of forming that French connection of drivers on the grid. And at times, we've seen that he has the raw talent. He's very, very quick and almost ousted uh, Sebastian Vettel out of Ferrari. But then there were times last year where maybe he overdrove the car, maybe this was on the limit too much. We saw it in Monaco as well, where he got that pole, but then obviously crashed the car, so he couldn't participate in the actual race. But again, this year, um, again, I don't want to dwell into too much of a he who should not be named because me and you both are just going to get like mocked up by a certain fan base. So, yeah, but this is the way he's even managed him, you know, and he's been very tactical with the DRS chicken and not really being phased by the other driver's aggression, just like doing his driving on the circuit and getting the results Ferrari needs. So, yeah, I, I could second you on that one as well. And I'm sure that... You know, as much as I do want to see Lewis in that mix as well, the, the kids are doing a really great job and you have to commend Russell, Norris, um, him, <laughs> Charles, and uh, yeah, all the, all the guys in the kind of um, the, the ascendancy as well. So definitely agree with you on that. And then uh, Brad, just uh, to wrap this up, because I'm conscious of taking up your time. I know you've got an important test to do tomorrow as well. Are there any other series or events that you're going to be taking part in this year? And how can we follow and support you, bro? Because, I, again, I don't need to be, like, gushy and too kind of, like, yeah, like, fanboy-esque. But, bro, like, you're, you're one of my favorite drivers, and I'm not just saying that. And you're a really great person as well. Like, I got the pleasure of meeting you, obviously, last weekend where we chopped up at the circuit. And just to see the attention to detail that you really apply to stuff and just the level of responsibility you have in relation to the go-karting the sim racing races that we do you know organizing the um the the broadcasting teams and all the things that you do not only just for yourself but just for other people like me that haven't had a taste yet of like what real motorsport is and what it's like to compete you know with really great people like i mean it would mean a lot to me if people could follow you as well and give you the support you know you deserve because it's not just about like the f1 drivers the other heroes as well like you out there that i think you know definitely deserve the the, the plaudits and support too that's really kind man um so to answer the first part of that um other things i'm doing this year um there's no car racing on the horizon this year budgets just don't extend to it um we thought we were going to do a little bit of tcr touring car racing in the summer but um that that isn't now looking likely to happen so the big thing for me this year is going to be the car world championship out in portugal in july uh end of july i think if you want to follow my adventures there you can just um, follow me on twitter at bradley philpot or my youtube channel I'll probably do some kind of video blogs for that and that's just same same again basically just brad philpot on youtube um uh, and yeah that's that's really how to follow me i've also i've got facebook and instagram and stuff but really the main things that i focus on are, are the youtube and the twitter account so follow me there and i'll try and keep you updated and and hopefully dan you'll join us for the le mans uh 24 hour oh, i'm not allowed to call it that actually because because of the the naming Copyright. rights, um, yeah. but the the twenty four hour race we're doing at a, an unnamed French track in the sim racing <laughs> world already. on yeah. on iRacing, 
um, in June. So join us for that with your team. Um, it'd be good to have you back on the grid. Oh, well, Brad, you don't have to ask me twice, man. I- I'd love to be there. I will be there with Mike Farler as well, my teammate, you know, to chop it up with you guys. And, you know, if there are any sim races out there as well listening, you know, um, please make sure you check out our Discord as well. Um, you know, th- all the details will be on the Twitter and we'll make sure that that's accessible for anybody that wants to join because it's going to be such an amazing event. I've, uh, I've already taken part in two of these M4M, like charity-related sim events. And they're the best ones I've ever been like participated in and i'm not just saying that either like i've actually been on brad's case saying dude we need like a weekly championship or something because i need that but you know all these things come in good timing and it's such a great event and a lot of fun as well like i really feel in my element there too with the sim racing and also what we haven't even mentioned as well brad is that you also are a, a stable member of the missed apex podcast as well with uh spanners and the rest of awesome dudes from the squad uh did you want to plug them too yeah, so listen to Mr. Apex podcast, basically. Yeah, it's it's going well at the moment. I believe the the figures are strong and Spanners is happy with it. And we're actually, speaking of karting and, and podcasting at the same time, we've got a, a race in two weeks at um, Ella Park. So a, a Mr. Apex kind of fan kart race. I don't know if there's any places left, but if you want to get on the reserve list, if there aren't any, just um, email. I think his email spannersready at gmail.com. But check out that. That's going to be good as well. That'll be broadcast. So. I'll send you the link to that, Den, so you can watch some more karting carnage. Oh, awesome. Well, we love to see it, as long as it's not at your expense, bro. Your health and safety is our number one priority and concern. You know, we we, we really adore you, and we want you to be around for a long time doing what you enjoy, Brad. So, yeah, we, we love to see that. And then, yeah, final question, Brad, and I'm not going to go with the cliche or, um, like, what advice would you give to the kids or, you know, like, those kind of things. But just, um, Brad... If you could go back and talk to young brothers, a junior brothers, if you could go back and, and see, see him and speak to him and talk to him, what would you tell junior brothers? What would your advice be to him? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I would probably, I would probably say, maybe don't take out such a big loan <laughs> because um, <laughs> it's very easy to spend way too much money on. Um, on go-karts which aren't really up to scratch um in seriousness i'd just say um keep going probably you know just i'd I'd encourage my my younger self just to keep keep doing keep doing the laps and keep concentrating on trying to be fast because that's the at the end of the day that's the bit that makes everything else easier so um that that would probably be my advice but if you gave me longer to think about it i'd probably think of something better no well no i think that is a good piece of advice that could be applied also to the listeners too you know never to give up continue to pursue your your goals and your dreams because it's never too late and yeah like you mentioned as well like on the financial aspects too yeah maybe maybe we'd cut back on some of the loans but again it brad it worked out you know regardless of the the gamble or perceivable gamble you took at the time when you took out the loan to buy the cart that's ultimately got where you are today. And there's plenty of people that would give the right arm just to have like a quarter of what you've achieved, man. So like, as like your younger brother, like I'm super, 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 super proud of you, man. Like it's so awesome as well, just to have you on, on this podcast. Like I know Georgina asked uh, me to ask you to email her and stuff like that. It's because we're so starstruck. So yeah, man, it's so awesome. Thank you. Thank you a million, you know, for, for taking your time to be on the podcast and uh, hopefully again we can chop up with you soon and we wish you all the best with all your endeavors and everything you're doing 
um i'm hoping to like you know work with you in the future on um maybe some stuff for my content or you know just stuff like that too and yeah you're such an awesome guy you're a legend to all of us and i just want you to know that we all have your back well thank you Danes, and thank you georgina for having me on oh excellent well guys this has been another episode of georgina's stripping the dipping uh you're joined by usual co-host amg dense aka plant and piastri had to add that in there as well and yeah please make sure you go and support our, our guy brad you know top superstar he always is a star and uh yeah we hope that you will have a great week it's race week so we'll be back with some imola and miami content coming soon as well but until then please take it easy guys until then peace